You see, friends, if you were to make your way across the Great Central Road, you would eventually come to this place called Uluru. Now, while when you were a kid, it probably wasn't called Uluru, it actually still looks the same as Ayers Rock that you saw 30, 40, some of you 50, some 60. And for those who have seen paintings of it, the paintings from 100 years ago, from 200 years ago, would be the same. If you were to go to the land of Israel and have a look at Mount Hermon in the north, Mount Hermon would have looked the same to Moses. It's a rock, or it's a hill, it's a landmark. You'd go to Mount Tabor, the conical-shaped hill that comes out of a, out of a, a flat plain, it would look the same. You would go to Mount Sinai and it would look the same. From generation to generation, it's a landmark. But friends, if you take out those landmarks, the ones that man hasn't tampered with, very little in this world is the same as even 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, no one had a smartphone. No one could do a presentation like this. The world has changed considerably. Nothing is the same as it was back then. Just think of our cars from 20, 30 years ago. When I was a kid, and I'm not that old, cars were unreliable. It wasn't uncommon on a Sunday afternoon for someone's car to have been broken down and they're not able to get it going and there were people out there helping them get it going. That was common. Not so anymore. Tyres used to get punctured very easily. Nowadays they don't. Changes of this world are amazing. You know, friends, have a look at this statistic. See if I can make it work. Technology. Sometimes it doesn't work. Up until about 1900, knowledge doubled every century. By 1945, it was happening every 25 years. By 1982, every 12 to 13 months. Now, by the time you get up in the morning and go to work, knowledge will have doubled. That's mind-boggling. But with it comes, friends, some incredible implications. What was discovered today, and I'm going to say discovered in inverted commas, may well be proven wrong or out of date tomorrow. That's the wisdom of man. What you discovered today Science may well prove it wrong tomorrow with increased knowledge. And I look at the work that I do, the type of filling material I used as a dentist when I graduated, which was the standard filling material for 150 years. We were taught how to explain to people that this was safe. I haven't used it at all for three years. Gone. That's the world in which we live. And the new materials are better, safer, longer lasting, less dangerous 
less effect, less problems for the tooth. That's the world in which we live. And who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? It's likely to change again at a much more rapid rate. I want to think for a moment about science. This is straight out of, out of the Encyclopedia Britannica online. Science is any system of knowledge that is concerned with the physical world and its phenomena and that entails, and in, and that entails unbiased observations and systemic, systematic examina, examination, experimentation. In general, a science involves a pursuit of knowledge, which happens to double every 12 hours, covering general truths on the operations of fundamental laws. Science can be divided into different branches based on the subject of study. The physical sciences study the inorganic world and comprise the fields of astronomy, physics and chemistry the earth and the earth sciences. The biological sciences, such as biology and medicine, study the, the organic world of life and its processes. Social sciences, like anthropology and economics, study the, so the social and cultural aspects of human behaviour. Now, I've bolded a whole lot of words there. Inorganic world, astronomy, physics, chemistry, earth sciences, organic world. We could put biology and medicine and, and, and human behaviour. Is anyone going to put their hand up and say that we know everything about all of those? No one is, are they? So what's going to tell us that what's currently known and those subjects is not going to change? Is not going to be proved wrong? No one can say that that's the case. Such is the changing of this world. And although it's changing, man has not found the answers to everything. Let me just give you an example of the failings of science. This was a reconstruction from fossils found of the Iguanodon in 1850. Now this Iguanodon, I want you to just have a little look at that little spot there on his nose. There's another one here. Now that was what science understood that that creature would look like in 1850. This is what science considers that creature looks like now. With greater discoveries. They found a full skeleton. And see that little, little chap on the end of his nose? Well, it doesn't actually go there. It goes there. That's science. That was the best science could do in 1850. That's the best it can do now. And that mightn't even be right. Give you another example. We're going to the Crystal Palace Park in London, the London Nature Museum or Natural History Museum, I think it is. We'll go and have a look at another chap, the Megalosaurus. Once again, this is what this chap was supposed to look like. 1854, when it was made, when that, uh, that sculpture was made. This is what they think it looks like now. And, and what does it say? 
it says, with mostly hypothetical head. And, and I'll tell you why. Because that's all the bones I've found. It's a big assumption that what this creature looks like. Even now, man hasn't got the answers on this. Demonstrates for us that science might think it's got the answers. But it just might not too. And the world out there doesn't know what it's got the full answer for and what it hasn't, does it? That's the world in which we live, the changing world in which we live, that's based on the wisdom of man, finite man. I'll tell you another statistic. 10 to 15% of science is flawed because of bias. Extrapolate that over generations, where are you going to go? We need to be careful what we're looking at. Well, let's have a look at the laws of the land. And why do they change? Well, the laws of the land. This is straight out of Wikipedia, I'm pretty sure. I can't remember. I think I Googled it, and you know how when you Google it, a little answer comes up? That's probably what I've copied. All right, the two main types of laws in, Australia, in the Australian legal system are the statutes or codified laws that are decided by state and federal parliaments and the uncodified case laws that are interpreted by judges in the court system. The statutes are enacted after a debate in Parliament. They can only be changed by Parliament. Now, what happens? Just think of our industrial relations laws. For example, we have a conservative, a conservative dominated Parliament. It goes this way. We have a, a, uh, the other side of Parliament, and it goes that way. And it goes backwards and forwards. Which one's right? Which one's wrong? Change. Five years later, change again. It all gets thrown out. It's all wrong according to the current system. And now it gets changed again. And the judge interprets it according to his interpretation. Who says what's right or wrong? How do we navigate our life in that situation? So, and what does the parliamentarian vote for? What his constituents want, so we'll get back in, doesn't he? And so public opinion, public pressure and pers political persuasion changes laws. And so change goes on. Well, how, do, how does public opinion happen? Well, public opinion is a very interesting subject. Wikipedia again. Well worth looking this one up. The formation of public opinion starts with agenda setting by major media outlets. That's where it starts. The major media outlets set an agenda. And that's done throughout the world. The agenda setting dictates what is newsworthy and how and when it will be reported. And all of those things are important on how it's going to be received. The same story can be written with a positive spin or a negative spin and it will be received differently. Another key component in the formation of public opinion is framing. Framing is when a story or piece of news is portrayed in a particular way and is meant to sway the consumer's attitude one way or another. 
Most political issues are heavily framed in order to persuade voters to vote for a particular candidate. That's how it works. And public opinion gets swayed in one direction or another. And social desirability is another key component in the formation of public opinion. Social desirability is the idea that people in general will form their opinions based on what they believe is the prevalent opinion of the social group they identify with. That's an insight into how public opinion is formed. Do we think that's going to be the same next week as it was last week? Or next year or the year after or in five years' time? Public opinion on many things has changed drastically in my lifetime. But friends, there is a reliable and accurate source of all necessary information for both life now and eternal life in the future. But that source has a problem. Well, it doesn't have a problem. There's a problem with that source. Current science often disagrees with it. Why? Simply for this reason, they haven't found all the answers. They haven't investigated it right to the end, and when they have, it will agree with it. Many parliamentary laws undermine it. And it's not popular according to current public popular opinion. And that might be because of the media, might it not? I'm referring to this book, am I not? The Bible. The Bible is that source. It's able to provide you with a steady source and direction in life now and fit you for eternal life, for eternity. Isn't that what we need in a world where tomorrow is going to be different to yesterday? Isn't that what we need? Something that's steady. Now, friends, the Bible's not popular, but it's a stubborn witness. It's a stubborn witness. You know, friends, that's the book we need to turn to. And, you know, the writer of that book, Almighty God, made a statement in Malachi chapter 3. Why don't you just go to Malachi chapter 3? It's a very short little statement. And here's what the writer of that book says through his servant Malachi. He says this. He says, I am the Lord. I change not. Boy, that's a contrast, isn't it? I change not. And if you want proof, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If you want proof that that claim is right, have a look at the history of Israel. I'm going to do that very briefly in a moment. Have a look at the history of Israel. Now, you might say, oh, look, that this book, and, and I'm quoting my Year 11 English teacher, this book was probably written by Shakespeare. What a load of rubbish. 
You can go and dig up the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can go to K4, you can have Dead Sea Scroll 4Q76, and you can find this verse. And it says that. And that scroll is dated 150 to 125 BC, before the nation of Israel, before the nation of Judah was destroyed by the Romans. And God said, I am the Lord, I change not. Now that the Lord actually is Yahweh. It's talking about his purpose. I have a purpose that is never going to change. He says, that's the story. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And boy, has the world tried to destroy Israel and been unsuccessful. Let's just have a look at a few passages that tell us about what God's purpose is with this nation. I'm going to go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10 and 11. You know, friends, we could probably go to a hundred passages of the Bible to have a look at this subject. This is what Almighty God says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10 and 11. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Here's that same Lord. O ye nations, that's us. Hear this word. Stop and think about it. And declare it in the isles afar off and say, He that scattered Israel, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. And for, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob. There's natural Israel. There's the same term as used in Malachi. He hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. You see, it wasn't because Israel's stronger than the nations. It's because God said, you can't destroy them. They can't be consumed. You know, it's actually picking on this um, reference in Malachi. It's actually picking on a uh, picking up a little little event that happened in the wilderness when Moses was come out of the land of Egypt. He saw a little bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And that memorialises Israel, always in trouble. All troubles never far away, but they're not consumed. They're not destroyed. And God says. I'm going to work with those people. Well, let's come to Joel chapter 3 and have a look at that purpose. Because what we're going to see is that purpose that God has with that nation. God's actually brought some of that to pass already. Because, you know, AD 70 came, the nation of Israel was decimated was totally destroyed. They were spread throughout all the earth, scattered amongst the nations. Come 1947, 1948, all of a sudden Israel became a nation again. And this is what Almighty God said would happen in Joel chapter 3. Very specific terms. Joel chapter 3 verse 1, For behold, in those days and in that time when I bring again the captivity of Judah, not Israel, Judah and Jerusalem. When I do that, 
Then I'm going to gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people. Verse 2 is literally is a description of Armageddon. That hasn't happened yet. But what about verse 1? In verse 1, God says, I will bring again the captivity of Judah, part of the nation of Israel, would return to the land of Israel. Friends, that was 1948. There's the partition of Palestine in 19, as, as was passed by the UN General Assembly, I think it's United Nations Resolution 181, 29th of November, 1947. Form the basis of a homeland for the Jews. For the Jews, Judah. <laughs> Judah would return. But there's a multitude of people scattered still, Jews scattered still amongst the nations. And biblically speaking, they are Israel. And so God said that only part of them would return, just as Israel, the nation was actually divided into two parts, Judah and Israel, so only part of the nation would return in 1948. But then God said, something else is going to happen. I'm going to bring again the captivity of Jerusalem. 1967, along came the Six-Day War. Israel outnumbered hugely beat five other nations, I think it was five, five other Arab nations, all of them bigger than Israel, in six days. Recaptured Jerusalem. See how the map goes in and around Jerusalem? All of a sudden, this prophecy is taking off. And all of a sudden, we have Judah and Jerusalem's captivity regathered. We have a nation again. But you know, friends, there's another step still coming in relation to that nation. I'm going to just go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And we want to look at verses 21 to 25. This is what God says about that nation. He says, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation. Judah and Israel will be brought together as one nation. I'll make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king to them all. That's yet future, friends. These are things that are yet future. At the moment, Israel is still effectively divided in two. You've got Judah in the land. The rest of the nation, scripturally speaking, is Israel. If you look at the previous section of this, of this chapter, it describes that situation. And it says, one king shall be a king to them all, and they shall no more, they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. It's talking about the historical situation that took place in the land of Israel. 
And it goes on to describe how they'll no longer worship their idols in verse 23. And in verse 24, it talks about David, my servant, shall be king over them. That's talking now, and that's actually harking back to the way in which David was established as king when he brought together Judah and Israel, united them under his rulership in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 25, And they shall dwell in the land which I have given unto Jacob my servant. And so we have God's purpose with that nation. And we live at a time when the nation of Judah has been reformed. And we're told it would be called Israel. You go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and it talks about the mountains of Israel that have been brought back from the sword in Ezekiel chapter 38. But scripturally speaking, it's only part of that nation that's reformed. And so God said exactly how this would happen. And that's happened. So what we're seeing, friends, this book is reliable. This book can be trusted. Over how many thousand years can this book be trusted? Well, there was that prophecy that we began with. There was God's comment. I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Well, over 2,000 years old, that comment is. Well, how else? Can the Bible be relied on for other things? Well, let's have a look at this very current subject of infection control. Hand washing. You know, according to the globalwashing.org website on, on hand washing, history of hand washing, the father of hand washing was this Hungarian doctor that I can't pronounce. He was working in Vienna and he noticed that, you know, when a doctor's performing an autopsy and then goes straight from the autopsy to deliver the baby without washing his hands, surprise the surprise that the poor lady gets an infection and the child gets an infection and they probably die. And across the road where there's midwives delivering babies and they're not doing autopsies, a lot more survived. And all of a sudden he thought, well, let's make sure they wash their hands. And all of a sudden, mothers stop dying, babies stop dying. And so was born hand-washing in the modern world. But you know, friends, the Bible, if they read their Bibles and applied the principles, they'd have done it from the start. Because in Leviticus chapter 15, if someone had an issue or a discharge, the person himself would be unclean and his bed, and anything he sat on, and wore, and anyone who touched him or his clothing, the bed, the seat, or seat he, he had, all of those things were unclean. He had to wash himself and his clothes, and he had to be un unclean until evening. And if you go through Leviticus chapter 15, you see how it talks about wash and bathe and wash and bathe. If they'd applied those principles from the old testament they wouldn't have had a problem in fact under the law if you touched a dead body you were unclean for seven days surely that's telling you something and there's many other things you know the law commanded people not to eat pigs because untreated pig meat <coughs> leaves you prone to getting brain infections which make you go mad can't remember the name of the, of the particular bug that you get. Or 
Under the law, you weren't to eat a bat. And that may or may not be significant in the world in which we live. You know, under the law, well, for many centuries, the world thought that leprosy was brought on by eating hot food, or perhaps it was by eating pepper or garlic and meat or meat that was of diseased hogs. That was what they thought. This was the world's thinking on, this was the science of the time on leprosy. And, and some said it was a malignant conjunction, a malign conjunction of the planets. This was the science that this world had. If they'd read their Bibles, they'd have known how to stop passing it on. They'd have known how to prevent it. All they had to do was look up Leviticus chapter 13. Where it says, all the days wherein the plague shall be in him. He shall be defiled, he shall be unclean, he shall be without the camp, separation. You know, these are principles that we're having to enforce at the moment in the world in which we live, aren't they? They're not new principles. They were taught in the Bible several thousand years ago. All of a sudden, science worked it out, caught up with the Bible. This one's particularly disturbing. You know, back in the 1800s, science had a particular interest in Aborigines. Half a century or so after 1860 witnessed a remarkable surge in the interest of a morphological and anatomical investigation of the Australian Aborigine. And, and this was brought about, friends, by, by the fact that, that there was a surge in interest in evolution because Charles Darwin had published his book in 1850. And it was believed that the Australian Aborigine was lower down on the, on the, on the scale. And so there was a lot of interest in that. And they were after heads of Aborigines, skulls, brains, all sorts of bits and pieces of Aborigines. And see the point in bold, we put in bold. So still more influential was the climate of debate stimulated by the ideas of evolution. And this was the problem. Ideas that came out of these evolutionary theories meant that they were very interested in the Australian Aborigine, which they thought was dying out because they were savages and the more civilised, Darwin said, the more civilised people would overtake the savages and the savages would die out. And that was what it was believed. And this, this have, have a read of this little point that's made about this, the curator of the Australian Museum. His name was Mr Ramsey. And the, the article I've got is Ramsey's Regime. It's, it's written by a chap by the name of Paul Turnbull. Very interesting article to read. It's a little bit disturbing if you read all of it. Shows us that this country doesn't have a very nice history in some places. But you know, the curator of the Australian Museum in a letter dated 28th of August, 1882, noted the greater difficulty to get Aboriginal specimens. And he wrote this, the shooting season is over in Queensland and the black game is protected, is protected now by more humane laws than formerly. So it's impossible to obtain reliable skulls and skeletons. Isn't that disgusting? Isn't that disgusting? And you know what? The problem was 
they'd forgotten this. That's the problem. They turned their back on this book and thought science knew better. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that they didn't evolve. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. And you can read on, friends, and you can go to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 6 and you will see that the darker races came from Ham. One of the sons of Ham was Mizraim, which is those really dark Egyptians. And it probably just about died out by now. And you could go to the New Testament 4,000 years later and you could see that God saw that it was necessary to preach the gospel and he specifically sent Philip to, to preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, not to point at him on the end of a gun. And if they'd read their Bibles, they'd have chucked out Darwin and all his theories and stopped doing what they were doing. And moreover, if they'd read their Bible, they would have read in the law, Thou shalt not kill. And they would have gone to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ for two, two, and a, two or so thousand years later and, that, and, and it, where he said exactly the same things. You know, friends, I've put in that quote there in, in Luke chapter 6, 18 and verse 20. You've just added a few other things because these things were going on in their treatment of the Aborigines. It was disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And so, friends, if they'd read their Bibles, they'd have never got never done that. You see, that's the world in which we live. And who knows what man's doing today, which they'll find out tomorrow was wrong. Well, friends, there's a whole pile of things that they'll find out is wrong. What man is today, what, where man is today ignoring God's word, tomorrow he will find out he was doing it wrong. And so, friends, that's the reliability of the Bible. And friends, I could go to numerous other examples which show that situation. We could show how, the, how God knew where the stars would be. He knew about the stars that man's only just found out. He knew about the snow that man's only just found out after they invented microscopes. And the numerous other things we could look at. We could go on for days on that subject. But we're going to come over now to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 5. So I want to show you that the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 delivered a discourse. And it's like a speech on the way of life that will lead to eternal life. He said there's a way of life that's going to lead you to eternal life and that way of life is going to be right whether it's today, tomorrow or 2,000 years time. We don't have time to go through Matthew 5 to 7. But you know, this is what he said. Verse 21. He says, you know, you've heard this. 
that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall be killed shall be in danger of the judgment. He said, no, no. He said, That's, let's look at the principle. He said, anger is going to lead to murder. Don't anger. Don't hate your brother. He then goes on, he says, I'll show you how to prevent adultery. One of the biggest vices that this world has. So I'll show you how to prevent adultery. He says, don't look upon a woman to lust after her. Friends, do you know what the driving force behind the internet is? That very subject. And it's changing for the worse daily. The Lord Jesus Christ laid out some principles which are as valid today as they ever were. I'm going to read it. Verse 27, right down to, to, verse, um, to verse 32. He goes, uh, that's that of chapter 5. He goes on, he talks about attitudes to oaths. He says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Shouldn't have to sign on the dotted line and look at the fine print. This is the way in which the world has changed. It's the attitude to our enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Verse, verse 44. And he goes on to give instruction on how to pray to God. It's a recognition of God's power and our lack thereof. Man's got it all the other way around, haven't they? He's showing, friends, that God needs to be first. In chapter 6, he highlights the fact that God should be first. Have a look at verse 34, 33 of chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, put those things of God first and God will look after the rest. Put your trust in God. That's a different attitude, isn't it? So that's going to produce the right outcome. Too bad where you live or when you live. Too bad how much the world's changed, that's going to work. You know, he goes down into chapter into, into chapter to, to seven, chapter seven. Just pick up verse 13 and 14. He says there's two ways. There's two ways in life. So enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be that go in thereat wide is the gate broad is the way it's easy to get on and everyone's doing it isn't that the world in which we live it looks like the place to be you know friends very interesting looking for a picture end up getting my own Fitzgerald River National Park, by the way, if you're interested. Um, I looked up the Broadway. No picture was appropriate. Well, it was appropriate, but I wasn't going to put it up there. Gives us an idea of what the Broadway is all about. Then he says in verse 14, but straight 
is the gate. And narrow, constricted, is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. It's not going to be according to popular opinion. It's not going to suit the wise of this world. They're going to think it's wrong. Because few there be that find it. And the world is full of people rushing into that wide gate that's condemning them to destruction, that's sending them over the cliff to eternal destruction. You know, friends, the Lord finishes with a very interesting little parable in this particular discourse. And it was spoken to his disciples to a group of people who heard what he had to say. And he said this in verse 24. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. It was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So there's two houses. There's those whose foundation is the things that Jesus taught. There's those whose foundation is those things that Jesus taught. And there's those whose foundation is the shifting sands. One was going to be found wanting. The other house still stands. And you know, friends, it was graphically demonstrated in the first century. Because there were two houses. There was a house being built by the, Lord, by the apostles with the Lord Jesus Christ as the foundation. There was the house that was built by the Jewish leaders with Herod's temple as its pinnacle. And you know, friends, the rain which represents the doctrine, the teaching came and it revealed the foundation. Let's come over to Matthew chapter 15 and see what the foundation was of those people to whom Jesus spoke. Have a look at that foundation. Matthew chapter 15. And here's the Pharisees that came to Jesus. And they said, why do thy disciples, verse 2, transgress the tradition of the elders? 
for they wash not their hands when they eat. Now, Jesus wasn't saying it was wrong to wash your hands. He was saying that that wasn't divine requirement to be righteous in the sight of God. And he answered and said, Why do ye transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And he goes on, he says, um, he says in verse 6, You have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And then in verse 9 he says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And what are those commandments going to be like next year or the year after? As they change, as the parliament changes, as the commandments of men change, as they did even in the first century. And so here was that, that foundation shown to be the shifting sands of the commandments of men. They listened to the teaching of Christ, but they didn't do it. And the flood came, the Roman invasion. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 will tell you that the end thereof was with a flood. Resulted in not one stone left upon another as the nation was destroyed. And the wind came, a symbol of divine judgment, and blew them all away. You can have a look at Jeremiah chapter 18 and see how that idea is exactly used. As they were scattered amongst the nations, brought that house to an end. It's gone. But the, the apostles built on the foundation of Christ another house. And they listened to the teaching of Christ and did it. Let's have a look at what happened when that house was examined. Let's come to Acts chapter 4. You see, the teaching of the apostles as their house was examined. They turned to the as the as the uh, the the uh, Annas the, and Caiaphas, the high priest, John and Alexander in Acts chapter four and verse six, as they gathered the disciples to 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 put pressure on them. They said, verse seven, by what power? Or by what name have you done these things? What's the foundation of what you're doing? And they stood up to them and they said in verse 10, Be it known unto you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone, the foundation, the cornerstone of the foundation, which was set of naught of you builders. In other words, as you were building your house, you took that stone and threw it away. 
but it's become the head of the corner. And he says, this is what it's all about. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye can be saved. As their foundation was examined, it was shown to be firm. And as they stood firm to the authorities, their house was shown to be sure. And as they listened to the warnings of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they saw Jerusalem compassed with armies, they fled, went to Pella. And as the winds of doctrine blew across that house as the years went by, that matured nation, that matured house has stood firm. And those who are in that house, friends, as the winds of doctrine pass by, are able to stand firm. That's the, the, you might want to have a look at Ephesians chapter 4, which talks about those things um, in, uh, um, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. I want to now come to our reading, friends. Because in Psalm 37, we're given two types of people. You know, friends, we saw there's two ways. There's some who are built on a foundation, the principles of the teaching of Christ. They've heard them and done them. Psalm 37 describes that as the righteous and the wicked. And in Psalm 37, friends, we have a description of these two types of people. And the idea of the wicked is expanded for us in that particular chapter, in that particular psalm. The word wicked occurs 13 times. And this is, this is a demonstration, friends, of the inspiration of the Bible. The word wicked, the Hebrew word rasha, occurs 13 times in that chapter. 13 is the number of rebellion. There's the wicked demonstrated. And as you go through that chapter, you'll find the way in which the way of the wicked is described in six characteristics, the number of man. Very significant, isn't it? And those wicked are, are contrasted. Well, what are the ways of the wicked? They carry out... They, they carry out wicked schemes. They plot against the righteous. You know, they hate those who believe and live the ways of God. That's the wicked. But then there's the righteous. And the righteous occurs nine times. And nine's the number of finality. It has the final say. You know, if you take nine... Multiply it by 2, you get 18. 8 plus 1 is 9. If you take 9, multiply it by 12, you get 108. 1 plus 0 plus 8 equals 9. All right? You do that with any number. Multiply it by 9, add up the, the, the result, it'll be a multiple of 9. 9 has the final say, and righteousness is going to have the final say. See how, how well the Bible works. The incredible power of this book. 
And this is the way of the righteous, 18 characteristics, 9 times 2, final say. These are the characteristics that are going to have the final say. 18, Carrie, want to just pick up one particular one. The law of God is in his heart. There's the way of the righteous. The law of God is in his heart. It's not just something he does because he's got it. He's actually growing to realise how powerful and good that law is. How much better than the ways of man. Because it changes not. But you know, friends, there's two types of people in that chapter. But for those people, there's two ends. For the wicked, there's 13 lists, 13 points of their outcome. The wicked are going to be cut off. There's going to come a day when they're going to perish. They're not going to exist. They're going to be destroyed together. They're like the grass is going to be cut down. They're going to have no, they're going to have an end. But for the righteous, nine times two again, 18 times, they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to delight themselves in abundance of peace. Their inheritance is going to be forever. There is the word, the outcome for the righteous. To inherit the earth forever. But you know, friends, those things didn't start there. They come right out of Genesis. Let's come back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12. Because God called a man called Abraham. Well, his name was Abram at the time. He called him and he gave him some promises. And he says to that man, Abram, says, come out of your country, it was Ur of the Chaldees. It was actually a, a, a very advanced nation in that time. Called them out of that world. And he said, I'm going to give you a land. Didn't even tell him which land it was. But he says in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, he says, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You see, there's the wicked. They curse the righteous. God says, I'm going to curse them. But in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now what's that blessing going to involve? Well, let's come to chapter 13. Because here God builds on that promise. And he says concerning that promise in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 14, God says to Abraham, verse 14, middle of the verse, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. He says, I'm going to give it to you and to your seed forever. Isn't that what the Psalms were saying? They're going to inherit the earth. Their inheritance is forever. Here's the seed of Abraham. They're the righteous. Here's the curses of Abraham. They're going to be cut off. And friends, the question for us, how do we become part of that group? Well, let's now go and get the New Testament to explain to us. Genesis, Galatians chapter 3. 
26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Here is building on that foundation with that cornerstone, putting ourselves in that house. He says, We are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And see what it tells us? It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what nationality we are. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter who our ancestors are. It doesn't matter what class of society we belong to. If we've chosen to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, we then become Abraham's seed. We become part of this group, the righteous. Our hope is to inherit the earth and our inheritance will be forever. And so, friends, we leave you with this message. The world is changing. And friends, it's going to undergo another major catastrophic change in which everything we know now is going to be turned upside down. And that's when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be established as king on this earth. If we put our trust and our confidence in the God of this book, we can be part of it. You owe it to ourselves and to our families. Thank you for your time. 